That seems like a, a natural thing to do when another year draws to an end. We look back, we take stock of things, right? What have we done with the time that God has given to us? What were the highlights? What were the lowlights of, of this year in particular? What can we learn by looking back and seeing what God and his providence has seen fit to bring us through, to preserve us through? This, this time of year in particular can be difficult, it can be hard, even in a typical year. For some of you here right now in this place or joining us even online, the holiday season is, is difficult. It comes with a particular dark cloud, a, a sense of grief, a sense of loss perhaps. When we see celebration and joy all around, it can be a reminder of, of what we've lost. Whether it might be a wayward child, uh, a loved one who's, who's passed on, a broken family, uh, maybe it's just any number of desires of longings of your heart that have not been fulfilled. They can bring difficulty at this time of year. And this has not been a typical year, as you know. It's brought its own unique griefs and difficulties, physically and uh, emotionally, spiritually, economically. Your list of reflections based on this year would probably be different from everyone else's, what God has shown you uniquely in your own life. But I believe that there's at least three things that, that have been brought to us all. First, we've learned again the importance of physical presence. We are not just souls who happen to have bodies. It's not how God has created us. The fact that we have been given bodies by God is no accident. God has done this on purpose. We are a union of body and soul. It's the way that we are designed to be. So while we have been isolated, it's been really cool. It's been great to be able to connect with people and to to live stream and to zoom in with folks and be able to see, connect in some sense, but we all know that it still misses something. We're grateful for being able to live stream, grateful to have you with us even right now joining us, but you're not actually with us. We've all felt the difference between being present physically and being present virtually. Physical presence matters, and there's just no satisfactory substitute that we might be able to find for sharing the same space with other people. Second, we've learned again the importance of saying, Lord willing, across the state, across the the country, across the world, so many of our greatest, biggest, grandest plans for 2020 have been stopped in their tracks. Maybe you remember how we started this, this year here, in particular with the 2020 Clarity Sermon Series. I think given what we know now, We'd probably still do the same thing. But it's a little embarrassing to look back and say, oh, clarity in 2020. Uh, nobody <laughs> envisioned what 2020 had in plan for us. But there's very little chance any of us could have envisioned that sort of thing. We might have entered into this year with a, a sense of self-sufficiency. But God willing, we can leave this year with a sense of dependence upon God. If there's no other lesson that we can take from this, perhaps it's that. If we learn this lesson well, we can leave this year with a sense of humility instead of with pride. Third, we've learned again the importance, the difficulty of waiting, of patience. I'm sure you've heard someone say, or perhaps you've said it yourself, I cannot wait until this year is over. Well, at times it seems as if the pandemonium of this year just will not end. 
but the end of the year is just around the corner. We're not generally not really patient people, generally speaking anyways, uh, but this year I think has really tested all of our patience. But Lamentations 3 tells us that, quote, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So these three lessons from the last year should help us understand our need for Christmas in particular. When it comes to the need for physical presence, we rejoice at the birth of Emmanuel, who is God with us. When it comes to God's surprising and sovereign plans, we celebrate God's redemptive plan, who who sent Jesus Christ in a way that was surprising when the fullness of time had come. And when it comes to the importance of patience, we are overjoyed with our long-suffering and patient God who is patient with us and who always remembers his mercy, always keeps his promises. God's redemptive plan to enter into creation and the incarnation is the cornerstone of our blessed hope. This is the fact that we celebrate at this time of year. The incarnation. It's really only when we feel the the weight of the the difficulty, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, the effects of sin in the fall, that we can really understand, really appreciate why Christmas is good news. Let's pray before we officially begin. Father, we are grateful for this, this opportunity to to hear from your word. Father, as this is the, the fourth week of Advent, this, this year in some senses has flown by and in others it's taken forever. But you have brought us here to this place in particular this morning or to this website to be able to hear your word. God, help me faithfully read and explained and applied. We need to hear from you. Keep me from error. May your word go forth this morning with power, with comfort, with joy. Last these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that we are calling our attention to this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke, right at the very beginning, Luke chapter 1. B just read it for us a moment ago, and it's called the Magnificat. Magnificat. Uh, you might see that header in your Bible. And Magnificat is just the Latin word that we see in verse 46. To magnify. That's what magnificat means. So in the Latin translation of the New Testament, magnificat is the first word of this passage. And this little hymn of praise has been used as a regular part of Christian worship. We have record of at least since the year 500 used as a part of normal Christian worship services, but I'm sure it goes back to well before that even. It's also, this is interesting, the longest unbroken set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. Did not know that. It's, it's a remarkable poem, and, and I hope by the time that we leave here this morning we'll be able to have some sense of appreciation of its message, a little more at least than we did when we came in. I, I think it's safe to call this particular passage, this song, the original Christmas carol. Uh, this particular little song sits right between the folds of the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're familiar with the Psalms or the Proverbs, or if you read uh, 1 Samuel 2, as, as Kevin led us in reading that this morning, you'll know that Mary's language and the way that she speaks her poem is very familiar. It's very similar to the sort of languages and patterns 
of the Old Testament psalms and poems and words of the prophets. It sure sounds a lot like something from Old Testament poetry, but it's also doing something new uh, as it begins to unfold this mysterious gospel, as we begin to find out more about who this Messiah would be, as it brings clarity to the gospel. If we think of the Bible as one long symphony, one long work of art, We might be able to think of this particular song as a finale to the Old Testament and as an overture introducing the themes of the New Testament. The big idea that I think ties this this song together is this. Humble Mary rejoices because her child is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Humble Mary rejoices because her child is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. I'm going to sort of split the song into two halves. So let's look at the first half first in verses 46 to 50, where Mary magnifies her merciful Savior. I'll read those verses for us again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In Luke 1, verse 26, just there before our text in your Bible there, the angel comes to Mary She tells Mary that she is going to bear a son. His name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be the son of God. He's going to have an unending kingdom. Mary didn't understand how this is going to happen. She doesn't know how she's going to have a child because she is a virgin. But Gabriel tells her that the child would be divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he would be the son of God. And not only that, but her relative, Elizabeth, who is old and barren, past the childbearing age at the very least, couldn't conceive a child, she also was pregnant. And Mary responds to that, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then in verse 39, verse 39 of chapter 1, Mary travels to visit her relative, Elizabeth, that she just heard this good news about. And when Elizabeth hears Mary coming in, coming into the house, the, the baby in her womb jumps with joy as the baby in Mary's womb is there. Elizabeth knows that Mary's child is is the the Lord, is what she says explicitly. And she calls Mary blessed among women, is what she says about Mary. It was just a a brief greeting that Elizabeth brings to Mary, a word of blessing that sparks Mary's song of praise, beginning in verse 46. Uh, this, This particular moment in history was obviously unique, something special going on here, but I think it's good to stop just for a minute and reflect on the fact that there's this brief word of affection, of affirmation, of blessing that can strike a chord in people's hearts. Perhaps you can think of someone in your life who's bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life. Perhaps you can give them some brief note of encouragement of how you see Christ at work in them. You might be surprised how much it lifts their spirits and drives them to worship God who has given them those gifts. Being called blessed among women did not lead Mary to become proud. She did not become boastful. In fact, it seems that it caused her to humbly rejoice in God. 
Look at verses 46 and 47 of her song right at the beginning. There are two lines there that essentially say the same thing. They just say it in sort of slightly different ways, or the second line magnifies or explains the first line. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is what Old Testament poetry does. It says one line, and then there's a parallel line that comes right after it that says a very similar thing or a related thing. So what this is saying here is, as she magnifies the Lord, she is rejoicing in him. So in other words, she is glorifying God and enjoying him. She's found the purpose of life here in her song. And those concepts of magnifying, glorifying, enjoying, all of those overlap. To magnify the Lord is to, to make the Lord greater. To, make, to magnify something, we know this, you grab a magnifying glass and you look through it and it makes whatever you're looking at through the glass bigger. It's what magnify means. But we also know that God is infinitely big. How do you make something that's infinitely big even bigger? It doesn't make any sense. Well, we have to imagine it a little bit differently. There's obviously no way to make God bigger, greater than he already is, but what we can do is recognize how great he is. We can't add to his glory, but we can glorify him in our hearts. We can glorify him in our hearts by seeing and savoring his greatness. And we can bring glory to God with our mouths by saying true and wonderful things about him and then inviting others to join in with us. This is how we can magnify the Lord together. Have you ever thought of the Christmas story as a musical? It's kind of what's happening here. Elizabeth and Mary are interacting a little bit, and then all of a sudden you hear the strings start slowly in the background, lifting up, and Mary, Mary busts out into song. You know, it's like a Jack in Nightmare Before Christmas, or Ariel in The Little Mermaid, or Cosette in Les Mis. There's, there's something that happens where they, just, they can't say it, a song has to happen. It's the only way to express what they're thinking. That's interesting. There's actually three other songs in Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. There's three other ones after Mary's song. It's a musical. Maybe you haven't thought of it like that before. One 19th century English preacher said, quote, Christianity has given more poems, hymns, anthems, and manifold utterances of triumph and joy than any other influence which has touched the nature of mankind. What do you make of that claim? Is it true? That doesn't seem like too much of a stretch for me. Why do you suppose that is? What is it about Christmas that drives us to sing? She goes on to call herself a humble servant. She recognizes that she will be called blessed because of what God has done for her. Mary, throughout this, this passage, is marked with humility. She's marked with simplicity. She's marked with faithfulness. You can see it in her response to Gabriel's message earlier in this chapter, but you can see it also here in this posture that she has in her song. She has great worth. Mary, Mary has great worth. She's highly favored by God. She is blessed among women, and yet she is unworthy of the mercy that God has shown to her. She is a humble servant, as she says. Roman Catholics 
and, and the Eastern Orthodox Church venerate, quote-unquote, venerate Mary. To venerate is sort of to show reverence to, to, to Mary. They come very close to worshiping her, though. They call her the co-redemptrix or the co-mediatrix with Christ. And so it's sort of putting her on the same level as Christ herself. Roman Catholics also teach that Mary herself was sinless from conception. So when you hear people talking about the immaculate conception, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about Jesus's sinlessness. They're talking about Mary's sinlessness. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine that finds uh, no truth in the Bible that looks anything like that. So, so Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, get uncomfortably close to idolatry in their reverence to Mary because they pray to her even. You'll, you'll notice that. But what happens, I, I think, unfortunately, in response with Protestants, which is uh, us, is that we sort of overreact, perhaps, and be like, well, we are definitely not worshiping Mary. In fact, maybe we should ignore her or neglect her. That way we won't accidentally worship her. And that's not really... I think the right response, the right posture to have to Mary. She's an important character in redemptive history. She's highly favored. She's blessed among women. She is to be honored. So if there's a reason for someone to boast in the biblical narrative, redemptive history, she's got some reasons. The mother of the Son of God. But notice in this psalm, her hymn, she deflects from herself to thinking about God and his greatness. It's a good reminder for all of us. If we're having a hard time magnifying God, I might suggest that it's possible that we're spending too much time magnifying ourselves. I think we can magnify ourselves in a couple different ways. It can look different. I think we can magnify ourselves, make ourselves look bigger, more important, more central, by focusing on our goodness, looking at our own good deeds and saying, man, look how, look how much better I am than this other person spending all that time thinking about yourself. Or we might be magnifying ourselves by thinking so much of our own sinfulness, of thinking that there's no way, if, if Jesus knows everything, if he knows who I am, what I've done, there's no way Christ could love me. There, you're making too much of your sin. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, as Richard Sibbs helpfully reminds us. Both of those perspectives place way too much emphasis on ourselves. Uh, there's a little book that's really helpful called The, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller. Tim Keller says this quote in that little helpful book. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I like the way he puts it. But Mary is not only humble, she's also faithful. Her joy was the result of faith in God's promises. She had heard the promise about this child from the angel Gabriel. She had it confirmed by Elizabeth. But the child's not born yet. Now, there's a sense in which she is still anticipating the fulfillment of this promise, and yet she rejoices. So I think we can see in this psalm that faith is the prerequisite of her joy. Faith is the prerequisite of her joy. She glories in God's promises to her. And might I suggest that you and I are in a very similar situation. 
even here this morning. We sing songs about redemption in anticipation, waiting for the arrival of Jesus. Paul says in Romans, Romans chapter 8, that, quote, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's Paul in Romans chapter 8. The, the, the birth of a child is a real joy. Uh, it's, it's really fun to be able to rejoice together with the Vincents and the birth of, of their daughter uh, just a couple of days ago, Mia. A baby being born is something to be celebrated. I, we inherently know that. Uh, even as I was preparing for the sermon, my own six-year-old daughter was going around the house with her own little baby doll, keeping her warm and snuggled up gently into a blanket, putting her down for a nap, making sure that she's had her breakfast. Every child is a gift to be cherished. But this particular child, this child that was given to Mary, is a gift even to those who can't bear their own sons and daughters. Jesus' birth isn't just joyful news for Mother Mary. Jesus' birth is the good news that we all need. Look together at the second half of this song in verses 51 through 55, where God magnifies his mercy to Abraham's offspring. I'll read it again. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So if you've got your Bible there in front of you, Check it out. Look at it. I just want to notice the structure of this, this song as a whole for a minute. Make sure you've got your text there in front of you. Throughout this song, I think you can notice that there's a contrast between humility and exaltation, between being low and being lifted up high. Check verse 48, for example. Mary says that she has a humble estate, and then right after that, she says that she will be blessed. So even there, you can see humility and exaltation. Those are opposites. Verse 51, verse 52. God scatters the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and brings down the mighty. There's two ways of saying the same thing, similar things. So he brings down the ones who have exalted themselves, the ones who have exalted themselves in pride. And then it says he exalts those of humble estate. And then in verse 53, uh, the hungry and the rich are used there. I think it's just another way to describe the humble and the proud. Filling the hungry with good things is like exalting the humble. Sending away the rich empty is like bringing down the proud and mighty self-sufficient ones. And then notice in the first half of the song, in verse 48. In verse 48, Mary calls herself God's servant. But then if you look at the second half, in verse 54, she calls Israel God's servant. The concept that ties both of these servants of God together is the mercy that God has shown them, both his servant Mary and his servant Israel. 
verses 50 and verses uh, 50 and 54, Mary and Israel. So it seems like the, the first half of this song, the first verse, if you will, is Mary reflecting on what God has done for her in this child. And the second half, it seems, reflects on what's going to happen as a result of what God has done for her in giving her this child. Mary speaks seven times in this second half of the song. She speaks seven times about what God is going to do in the future, but she says it in the past tense as if it was already done. She speaks in a prophetic past tense. He has shown strength. He has exalted those of humble estate. Even from the moment of Christ's conception, redemption is as good as done. One of the consistent themes throughout Luke's gospel that we see here and we see throughout the whole book is this great reversal that's taking place, the, the unique upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus gives the Beatitudes, and he says this, Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. And then right after that, as he's giving woes, words of warning, he says this, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Jesus picking up on these same themes we hear from Mary. Jesus also says in Luke chapter 13, 30, just a little bit later, some who are last will be first, some who are first will be last. And then in 1411, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, we see it in chapter 18, where Jesus gives this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Just read that passage for us. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you struggle with self-sufficiency. I know that we already talked about humility, but maybe we need a little more. Uh, seems, to be, seems to be central to Mary's song here. I've been reading the, the memoirs of uh, a pastor named Robert Murray McShane, and I ran across this quote that was in his diary. It says this, Oh, for true, unfeigned humility. I know I have cause to be humble, and yet I do not know one half of that cause. I know I'm proud, And yet I do not know the half of that pride. I resonate with that a lot. I too want unfeigned humility, not fake humility. We know that there's a fake humility, right? A humility that's actually pride, in a sense. Wanting other people to think that you're humble to build up your own ego. We can take pride in being seen as humble, but what Mary is doing in this song is she is recognizing her own lowly estate in comparison to the mighty God. She's just recognizing reality. It's just the way it is. You look at yourself in comparison to God, you humble yourself. She's recognizing what's true. When you magnify God, you begin to take yourself a little bit less seriously 
and I need more of that in 2021. So what can you do in this upcoming Christmas week to encourage your own humility? What ways can you actively fight against your pride? How can you consider the, the needs of others as being more important than your own? Maybe you can think of somebody who, a, a Christian, who just like really embodies humility really well. Don't go and tell them because you'll ruin it. But think of ways, like practical ways, that they embody humility and use it as a model. Perhaps think about that during this Christmas week, this week of selflessness, of putting others' needs before your own. More blessed to give than to receive, all that. Jesus is a king who restores order and he restores justice. These are not new concepts that we hear here in Mary's song. As we heard before, this is echoes of things that we've heard in the Old Testament. In fact, if you take the time to read 1 Samuel chapter 2, after you've just read Mary's song together, you'll see how similar they are. There are a lot of similar themes. Hannah was given this child named Samuel. Both Hannah and Mary rejoice over the Lord's deliverance. They proclaim God's holiness. They condemn pride and they celebrate how the Lord exalts the humble. And Hannah ends her prayer with verse, verse 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10 says this, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Anointed. And that's the first time where we see this idea of a spirit-anointed king referred to in the Old Testament. We know, because we went through the books of First and Second Samuel a little bit earlier this year, we know who that spirit-anointed king would be in Samuel, right? It was King, king David. Jesus is always the right answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have set you up like that. Within Samuel, the spirit-anointed king is King David. He was this extraordinary king. He was just an ordinary man, though, so we have a better king who's being sung about by Mary in Luke chapter 1, and his name is King. There we go. We got it. Foreshadowing, all the way back there from 1 Samuel 7, this anointed, spirit-anointed king. It was always God's plan to send his son. This has always been the plan. Born of a virgin, to crush the head of the serpent, to reconcile God back to man, to restore order, to restore justice, which is all a result of our rebellion against God and his good law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and 15, very important chapters to understand. If you want to understand how the Old Testament relates to the New, because it's there that God commands Abraham to leave his home. He promises him a seed or offspring or descendants, generations, a land, and that he would be a blessing to the nations. We know that Abraham does have many children. Those children eventually turn into the nation of Israel. Abraham has uh, many children, and we know that Israel has a, a long history of, of hope, of anticipation, going all the way back at least to Genesis 3.15, where there's this seed of a woman who's going to crush the head of a serpent. Or in 1 Samuel, where we hear about this anointed king who's going to be coming. So many other places throughout the Old Testament. They have been waiting, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, as we just sang this morning. And this moment, 
this incarnation is the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Israel at the very beginning of their history, and even the beginning of human history. Do you know why the incarnation is important? It's possible that you're here uh, as a friend of someone who's just invited you. It's, it's, the Christ, it's the closest Christmas service to Christmas. So maybe you're just here to hear a little bit about Jesus and check it off your list. Maybe you're a longtime Christian. Maybe you've just never quite fully thought through why Jesus? Why the God-man? Uh, why do we need a, a redeemer who is truly God and a redeemer who is truly man? Why did we need the second person of the Trinity to enter into creation and take on human flesh? Why did the Holy Spirit have to come upon Mary and cause her to conceive a child? Because we need a redeemer who's going to bring us back to God, who's truly human and truly God. Let me show you two questions from a catechism. These are from the New City Catechism. Question 22 says this. Why must the redeemer be truly human? Answer that in human nature he might take on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weakness we've heard about that from the book of Hebrews just recently right the next question question 23 in the New City Catechism says why must the Redeemer be truly God that because of his divine nature his obedience and his suffering would be perfect and effective and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. That's why we need Jesus. We are sinners in need of God's mercy. I think we intuitively pick up on that idea. We have broken God's law. We know that we have done wrong. We have rebelled against him by the things that we have done. We've rebelled against him by the things that we have left undone. And God's justice is perfect. And it is infinite. God would be unjust if he didn't punish sin. And we as humans could never satisfy God's justice. No human being, no created being could ever satisfy God's justice. Only God could bear the punishment of sin. But man owes the debt of guilt, not God. So it must be a man who takes the punishment. A perfectly righteous man, a sinless man... So God became man, the creator took on the form of creature to suffer God's wrath and to pay for man's sin to satisfy God's wrath, his justice against rebellion, against sin, against evil. God is merciful to those who fear him. This is what we see in Mary's song. Those that magnify him and don't magnify themselves. You can see how humility is really necessary to respond to the gospel rightly. We are helpless sinners who have no hope for salvation, for redemption, apart from grace alone, through Christ alone. That's the gospel. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Humble yourselves, First Peter tells us under the mighty hand of God, so that at the right time, he might exalt you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. This is why the incarnation matters a lot. Maybe you've heard about this thing that's been in the news the last couple days. Uh, I think tomorrow there is a special uh, event happening in the sky. Jupiter and Saturn are meant to be in conjunction. That's what the astronomers call it. So they're really close together in the sky. And they're calling it the Christmas star or the Bethlehem star. I don't, and they're saying it's like the star that led the Magi to see Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know if that's true. Pure speculation. But here's what I do know. You don't need the stars to align for you to find Jesus. God's providence has shown down from generation to generation until this very moment where you're in your pew or in your chair at home hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to you. If nothing else good comes out of 2020, what more can you ask for but recognition of the beauty, the satisfaction, the joy, and the message of the birth of Jesus Christ as God with us?